Salut. Salut. Bienvenue au podcast de Triple Trip. Welcome to the Travel Tribe Podcast. I want you to close your eyes and imagine for a second that you have just landed in a foreign country. You grab your backpack from the overhead bin, make your way through customs, grab Wi-Fi to message your mom that you're still alive, and step through the sliding door to the foreign city before you. Your goal for the next five months is simple. Not to spend a single dollar on transportation or accommodation. Your mission is to live a truly nomadic lifestyle, surrendering yourself to the fate of the universe. And your survival and comforts lie on the compassion of strangers. Where do you go first? Who do you talk to? What do you do with your now abundance of time and freedom? Our guest today, Zach Phillips, conducted such a five-month life experiment and shares his experiences and results, including his inspiration for the idea, the challenges and misadventures that arose, including getting robbed, and finally, his reflections and takeaways about humanity and the compassion of strangers. Please enjoy this week's Travel Tribe episode, Compassionate Homelessness, Wandering Europe Unkindness. Zach, welcome to the show. Hey there. What's up, guys? All is good, Zach. We're excited to have you on the show. Before we dive into your story, what made you want to originally leave the States and teach English abroad? I started looking abroad for a teaching job because I had studied Italian for two years and I was really good friends with my Italian professor. So I had this kind of dream of going to Italy to teach English and to, to live in Italy and become fluent in Italian. Found that that was just not really viable, not a very good economic opportunity and definitely not good for someone who had zero experience. And I had an economics background, not a teaching background. So I decided to try and look elsewhere. And I think South Korea was kind of becoming a hot spot for people to go teach English because all you needed was your degree and you didn't need a lot of experience. Got flown out there and then ended up living there for three years and then ended up living in China after moving to Shanghai and working as an economics teacher there for three years, which was cool being able to teach kind of what I studied in college. But then from there, ended up Finally, kind of going on an adventure, a dream that I wanted to do for a long time, which was I'd planned for about four or five years to go on a long trip where I could just quit my job and not have to work, kind of just do whatever I wanted to full time um, and not have to worry about money, ideally. Yeah, I can imagine many people have also dreamed about such a similar opportunity. So you're in Shanghai, you're teaching economics. Where does the idea for this adventure come from? Like a lot of people you meet, expats in particular, a lot of us even went to live abroad for various reasons of encountering kind of maybe unique stories of travel or unique stories of living in other cultures. I, just like a lot of other travelers, I think have always had various forms of kind of inspiration that inspired us to try and find our own adventure. The number of ideas I've had were certainly prolific. I feel like I've had a lot of different ideas for different types of adventures I've always wanted to go on. And there's still many uncompleted versions of those. Yes. Um, this one in particular was inspired kind of by two different sides. One of them was this whole fascination with travelers I met abroad who were living extremely frugally. Uh, there's one in particular, this guy I met in India while riding one of the really low-class trains you can ride. He had been living in India for almost six months on 
like less than $300 or less than $200. It was something really absurd. And he would get by. He had all these really unique stories of how he was trying to survive and get by without using money or at least using really little money. And it it really just, I don't know why, I was always drawn to it. I was always really drawn by people who could do this. I think there was partly the fascination of like just the challenge, like mm-hmm. trying to solve all these weird problems that you're going to run into every day. But then the other challenge of how to how to do this kind of experience and feel comfortable and okay and like learn to like find the beauty and the what do you say the satisfaction in life despite having so little and despite yeah. not feeling like letting go of so many of your comforts that you're used to. Yeah. So, and then the other huge one was really, this guy did this project called Walking to Listen in the USA. He ended up uh, having a TED talk about it. And he he basically decided one day that he wanted to go on this, this adventure of basically like he, he sells everything he has. He gets rid of his apartment. He doesn't have any rent and he puts everything he owns into one little bag. And he decides to leave his apartment with a sign that said, Walking to Listen. And this was the kind of the whole title he used for his whole project. He called it Walking to Listen. The whole project was, so every day he would wake up and he would go out to the streets and he would start walking. And he simply had this one sign, Walking to Listen. And he would go wherever life took him from that experience. So someone picked him up on the street or, you know, stopped to see what he was talking about or see who he was. He was just kind of willing to put himself every day in the situation of I'm here to hear someone's story. I'm here to listen. I'm here to engage with this person and share their story with them and connect with them. And this project was something I just fell in love with immediately as I heard it. I kind of took a conglomeration of both those two ideas and um, this fascination with, you know, this kind of frugal travel and wanting to be extremely present and compassion on a day-to-day basis. And made my own little version of it through Israel and through Europe. Did you have like a time limit in mind of how long you wanted to do this for? Yeah, I was going to try and squeeze it into five months. There were a couple of events. So I had key, like two key destinations that I was supposed to be at. So I had three big events that I wanted to make that summer. So everything, I had no other plans besides those. The only other thing that really was hindering me was in Europe, you only get three months. So mm-hmm. um, three months every six months to travel through the uh, European unions. I just knew I was going to use every, every second of that as well. Were you able to save some money from teaching before your trip? And when mm-hmm. I moved to China, yeah, I saved a lot of money. So in three years and not really, I mean, I was trying to save, but at the mm-hmm. same time, I traveled every holiday, every I had three months off a year, so I spent all that time traveling or going home at least. Yeah, so I didn't, I didn't like take breaks in a lot yeah. of regards in terms of like enjoying my life, and mm-hmm. I still managed to save over sixty thousand dollars. Yeah, it was, it was honestly, it even impressed myself too. Actually, it was, it was a large chunk of cash to walk away with. And- yeah, I think that's good to highlight just to give some background that you know you have a safety net to fall on just in case things don't go as planned. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, I think this is kind of one of those, you know, interesting kind of topics. Like, it's like this adventure we're going to talk about today was really supposed to be kind of like a a self-imposed challenging situation with the intent of growing through it, which is 
kind of something I'm all about, like uh, using discipline or like a certain set of circumstances you put yourself in to find out more about yourself and learn more about yourself. It's really important to mention that I had a safety net. It's mm-hmm. not like I couldn't spend money. It's not like I didn't have money. It's not like if I got in a really tight situation or in a situation that I felt like I was unsafe or um, being threatened or some in, in some way. Although you'll see, I did kind of fall into a couple of tricky scenarios. Um, they're never super life-threatening in any way. And I could spend money if I needed to. I think that safety net was really important. And I think it, um, you know, I wouldn't encourage people to do something like this without having at least a minor safety net. Yeah, that safety net is crucial just in case things take a bad turn during an adventure like this. As romantic as it sounds of living off next to nothing, I think my anxiety would be through the roof if I didn't have a safety net like that in place. So you have this idea brewing in your head for almost four years. You've got some money saved up and you finally decide to pull the trigger and embark on the journey. Walk us through those first days. What are your thoughts? What are your plans? What's going through your mind? So first day is kind of interesting. Uh, so I flew into Israel first. My first event, first big thing I really wanted to do. I've been kind of involved in the Burning Man world for the last eight years and mostly the regional Burning Man world, which is like this network of smaller mini Burning Man events in diff- various parts of the world. And they have a couple of big ones and other uh, outside the USA. And I was on my way to the one called Midburn. And Midburn happens in Israel and the Negev Desert. The burns are all organized into a bunch of smaller camps. I had a whole camp that I was going with and they were super gracious and like hosted me from the get-go. Didn't jump straight into just being on a backpack in a place where I didn't know. I mean, I didn't know any of those people to be fair, but at mm-hmm. the same time, also not my first time, just like kind of interacting with strangers. So I guess felt oddly comfortable. For those that haven't been to a Burning Man event, that's a hard um, thing to describe very clearly and especially in a brief amount of time. But, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's kind of like free-spirited art festival in the desert, essentially. This place, Midburn, is 14,000 people, so there is a significant number of people there. One of the things I was definitely going to walk away from this was kind of encouraging people was like, after doing Midburn, I met and was connected to so many really, really amazing Israeli people, young, progressive people, some older, but the event is probably a lot of people my age, older 20s, mid 30s, something like that. And there were some older people involved as well. But having met all of these amazing people in this window of seven days of being out in the desert. I walked away with so many connections and so many people inside of Israel. Israel, actually, I never ended up sleeping outside without like not in someone's home. So I was kind of graciously let into people's homes for the rest of the extent of my stay there, which was really, really awesome. (laughs) How did you have that conversation? Did people just look at you and be like, yo, bro, you need like a couch to sleep on or something? Like you don't need to sleep out there. Yeah, 100%. So I mean, especially with like Midburn community, they, it's a heavy Israeli event. 90% of the people there are actually Israeli. There's only about 10% of the people that are probably international, like people not from Israel. I was really kind of met so many lovely people there and everyone, you know, they all know who's not from, not Israeli. So honestly, I truly don't think I asked once. I 100% really don't think I ever asked anyone to stay at their place. Every single person I stayed with offered me 
a place to stay because being in that camp, they knew I was there and that I was a foreigner. And then they were asking me like, you know, did I have a job, what I was doing? And I told them, no, I was on this big journey. And, you know, I was going to be in Israel for an undetermined amount of time. The only next destination I had to be was Spain in like two and a half months, another burn event that they do there. I had this big window and I didn't know how I was going to use that time at all. And I didn't make any plans. Yeah. Everyone I met, you know, they literally, you know, if we got along really well or had a good connection, like they were really happy to host me. They, they wanted me to come. A lot of them were just like, yeah, I have a place. I have an empty couch. And if they had the space, they really wanted me to be there. And what was your backup plan? Like what would happen if you're looking at your watch and it's 11 o'clock at night and no invitations have been given do you start looking for some camel cuddle buddies out in the desert? Yeah, great question. So I had a tent with me. It was a small hammock tent, but it's a it's actually a really cool tent. It was a Kickstarter when I first bought it. But nowadays you just go to their website. I think it's called The Flying Tent. These guys make this tent that is like jam-packed into a really narrow case. And I could fit that inside my backpack. It was one of the things I traveled with. And it was kind of my emerging emergency sleeping equipment if I needed a place to sleep. And you could lay it out like a regular tent on the ground, or you could hang it from two trees like a hammock. So it could work as a tent, or it could work as like a hammock. And that was really my backup plan at that time. As you can imagine, everything is on the fly in my life at that point. So that strategy evolved a little bit over the five months in terms of like what I was doing for comfort. But the burner community is such a loving and like really friendly place that when I was going, I had my tent and I could use it, but I went ahead and was just asking if anyone had an extra tent or had like a sleeping mattress or anything I, that I could borrow because I was coming from abroad with just my backpack that I would really appreciate it. And I got set up like they had a whole tent for me. They had a whole sleeping mat. They held, had a blanket. They, I, I never didn't need anything. Basically, they brought everything for me. Were there any like horror stories or takeaways you had on trying to find places to sleep? Like one of the big lessons, like I definitely took away was never sleep in the city. That is the worst place to sleep. Like not only is it hard to find a comfortable space, you know, you're probably dealing with a lot of like urban area. It also is a place that attracts crime. If you're worried about something happening at night, it's going to happen in a city. It's not going to happen in the countryside. That's an interesting observation I made as well during my motorcycle trip through Vietnam, which I know you did as well. When we were in the big cities, such as Hanoi, where we were starting off our trip, there was like a lot of people trying to rip you off, crime, shadiness. You're like kind of on edge the whole time wondering if someone is trying to rip you off or you might get something stolen. So we bought these Honda motorcycles for like 200 bucks, which included the motorcycle, the helmet, and even a case of beer for the group. We actually learned later that they were actually cheap Chinese motorcycles with Honda decals on them. And they would consistently break down with flat tires and we even had gasoline like leaks that sprayed like a fountain. And while they're breaking down, we would stop these mechanics along the road in the countryside. And just walking up with your broken bike to these mechanics, you just knew that this was a ripe opportunity for a ripoff. No matter what the price they were going to tell you to pay, you literally had no other option because there was no other option of making it out of these, these countrysides. There was no Uber, no friends to pick you up, nothing. And what ended up happening was we got fair prices, or at least I believe they were fair prices because they were like a couple bucks to fix a flat tire. I mean, they could have charged anything and we would have had to pay it. So to me, the takeaway was when we put all these people into these big cities fighting for limited resources, especially in developing countries, 
you have these rat races, uh, which breeds these criminal and shady activities and people trying to just make some money. But when you're on the countryside, you really meet genuine people because, in my opinion, they're just better able to connect with you as a human and not just as a, a dollar sign. Yeah, and the funny thing is it was the same story in Europe. And these were all progressive countries. Spain, Portugal, France, Amsterdam, uh, the Netherlands, they were all the same. It's just like you said, it, it's the it's a phenomenon of a city. Cities become very competitive, but also they become very for lack of a better word, inhumane. You're around a, a thousand people. You can't care about them all. So you stop caring about that person in front of you. It becomes a game. It all becomes a competitive game. There are benefits that come from urban metropolises, 100%. And I could talk a lot about those benefits as well. The downside is that it also attracts this crime. So, you know, it was counterintuitive because anytime we travel, we want to go see cool cities. But then when I would hitchhike to a cool city, problems would happen. Ended up like totally detouring my plan in Spain after sleeping in Valencia and us getting a backpack robbed in the middle of the night while we're sleeping. Where, like nothing feels more dis uncomfortable than realizing that someone had like stood right next to your face because we had our backpacks right by our bodies and had stolen a backpack while we were sleeping. Oh no. And where were you sleeping when this happened? So there's a giant park in Valencia. I which, you know, made sense because that would have a lot of space and we felt like you'd be able to like, you know, we'd sleep more comfortable in this kind of green area. So it made sense to try and do that in the park. And I was with two other people. I was traveling with one of the girls um, that I mentioned before. We met another traveler who just happened to be sleeping in Valencia and was on the streets busking as well that day. All three of us went to go sleep together to try and feel more comfortable. It still happened and it was crazy. It after that day, I consciously knew I wasn't going to, I was avoiding cities for the rest of my, my trip. Sounds like a terrifying experience. So once you made your way to Europe from Israel and bought your plane ticket, which would be your last transportation and expense for the next couple of months, what was your plan for Europe? From the desert, uh, the only last thing I had left on my agenda was making it to that other festival called Boom that happens in Portugal, which is also another massive event. I think that one's something like 20,000 or 30,000 people. It's been going on for a very long time. And yeah, that happened in Portugal. So I had to get from Spain to Portugal. So after the burn directly in Spain, which is like central Spain, Saratoga Desert is I believe the name. I went back to Barcelona with the camp that I was with, stayed at a burner's house for a day or two. Um, I got to get a good shower in, which is essential and absolutely precious in this time of life. Every shower, I mean, I'll tell you one thing, you don't ever appreciate a shower like you do when you're virtually homeless for five months. I remember that shower, actually, yeah. which is funny. I, yeah. I definitely remember it. I knew I had to get to Portugal. And the question was just how I was going to go, what life was going to take me to, because I, I knew I was going to have to hitchhike the whole there. This is when I met, it was at that burn that I met this girl that I ended up, we had a really good connection. I met her and we both wanted to go to Boom. We tried hitchhiking. We went from Barcelona and we decided to go to Valencia for a few days first. In Valencia, she knew someone that did ayahuasca ceremonies, that like led ayahuasca ceremonies, that had this beautiful place in the mountains. And we stayed on his property for a few days. And then from there, we started hitchhiking and just heading west to Portugal. We were going to kind of go wherever things took us, kind of wherever our rides took us. But one of the first things we really struggled with that I, I struggled with and is... 
you know, kind of figuring out hitchhiking and the best methods. And I had done some minor hitchhiking before this point, but I had never really done like fully dependent hitchhiking travel. And how does that process look like? Are you just eyeing the Beamers and Mercedes to drive in style? (laughs) Yeah, I wish you had the luxury of kind of like choosing, but you know, it kind of took various shapes just based on like where we're starting, like where your starting point was. I th- so I think it was really in the cities, again, always harder. It's actually 10 times harder. I felt like getting a ride in a city than it ever was in the countryside. That was one of the tips I would 100% give now is finding smaller roads that aren't crazy hustling and bustling. Ideally, what ended up being kind of the my go-to route or plan was finding a pit stop, a gas station or something that was off a major highway going a direction I was trying to go. I would usually kind of go from gas station to gas station, use those gas stations as the main point for trying to pick up my next ride. And did you have any horror stories from hitchhiking, like any unwanted advances or anything that we sometimes see in the movies? Actually, no. No, honestly, it was extremely pleasant trying to. And at the same time, the other thing I was doing at the time is I was on a raw food diet. So mm. I wasn't eating any cooked food, which has some beauties of meaning I didn't need to worry about bringing any cooking equipment. But I basically just lived off fruits and vegetables and would eat stuff raw and wouldn't really worry about cooking food at all. There was kind of the complication of finding fresh food every every so often because I would load up my bag with food and try and carry as much as I could. They don't have grocery stores. They don't have a lot of like large vegetable produce markets anywhere but the cities. And as I mentioned before, I'm trying to avoid the cities. Food became a little complicated at some point. And I would have to kind of like ask if like where if I found a ride while hitchhiking, I would try and ask hope that they would be pulling through a produce market somewhere. And I'd be able to like, like they could stop for a minute and I could get some more food. Just so I can get the route in my head, so you started in Israel, then made your way to Spain where you purchased your last airplane ticket, and then you were hitchhiking. What was your route in Europe? Israel, I went from north to south, actually, the whole country. So I went through Jerusalem, I went through the northern part um, near the border of Lebanon, um, and then I also went down south, and we even went into Sinai in Egypt for two weeks, and that was amazing. Then I flew from Israel to Spain went to the Saratoga Desert, which is like central Spain, and then went back to Barcelona, went down south to Valencia, and then hitchhike west. And I ended up going kind of far north because that's just where my rides were going. So I just took the rides that were available. I got separated from the people I was hitchhiking with because they, we found out, one of the difficulties we found out is like getting a ride for two is 10 times harder than getting a ride for one. There were moments where I literally would sit outside for almost eight hours with no ride, that is taxing. Are you with another girl or another guy? Because I also would be pretty skeptical of picking up two dudes on the side of the road. And I'd be like, yeah, those guys are going to overpower me and say goodbye to my vehicle. 100%. 100%. And it was with a girl. We're always talking about this as well. We're like, you know, what's the best method here? We all found that being on our own was so much easier than trying to hitchhike with someone, which is a shame because especially there's having the comfort of having someone with you during those times is really nice. Having to like literally go separate ways, even though we didn't really want to at times was because just because we knew it was the only way to get a ride was it was pretty challenging. Travel tribe tip number one, whenever hitchhiking, leave the bros at home, bring the girl. 
Yeah, which as uncomfortable as that can make you and make you feel less safe, you're going to get a ride faster that way, sadly. Mm. We ended up having to do that. So separating from them, heading to Portugal, going to that festival at Boom, not trying to buy food, offered one of the kitchens there. They were the nicest food I saw there to work for them for in exchange for a meal. Ended up doing it every day. Ended up going to their kitchen every day to help for a few hours making food. And then I would get free food out of it. And then from there, they loved me so much. And they actually were kind of like a spiritual community called mm -hmm. uh, Ananda Marga. They have their own little permaculture place in the middle of Portugal. And this was one of the main things they did every year to raise funds for their community in Portugal was to cook food at these festivals. So they invited me to go with them to the next three festivals that they were going to. I literally festival hopped with them because they were just such lovely people that I really enjoyed being around. But they also needed the extra hand and it was just kind of a perfect exchange situation. So I would get fed food and I would get free tickets to the festivals to be their part of their crew. And at the same time, you know, I would just kind of sleep wherever everyone else was sleeping in the camping areas. So I did that through the rest of Portugal, finished, and then had to make a big decision what to do next and decided I wanted to go back, head north to this festival where some really good friends were going in Amsterdam. Um, actually, it was north of Amsterdam. It's called Leeuwarden in Northern Netherlands. Pretty ambitious hitchhiking, what do you say, next destination to go from Portugal, which is the furthest western point of Europe, yeah. to the Netherlands, which is one of the most northern ports, ports yeah. of Europe. Um, I hitchhike all the way through Portugal, through Spain, up through France, through Belgium, uh, all the way up to the Netherlands. <laughs> Why am I not surprised that Amsterdam was your final destination? I feel you arrived and you were like, dang, this is utopia. <laughs> which is funny, which is funny because now I tell people like really if having moved to Seattle now and like making life back in the States, what I kind of tell everyone is like Seattle actually kind of feels like the Amsterdam of the USA in many okay. ways. It kind of has that vibe, not quite as cycle friendly, which is one of the cool things of Amsterdam. But at the same time, and a lot of, you know, people from Amsterdam and living there would tell you that, you know, Amsterdam was sold to tourists. Seattle's not quite so bad in that regard. We do have a pretty good tourist industry here, but it's like not nearly to the extent of Amsterdam where most people feel like all of central Amsterdam is just filled with foreigners, no one that's actually living there. And where did you sleep during your time in Europe? Were you also getting invitations to crash at people's houses or were you just primarily camping out? Yeah, so it was a mix. Like if I met people, especially at the festivals, it was usually right around the festivals that I met people that were really good people that we actually just were good friends. We made a new friendship. They would either try and host me or we would be hanging out doing something kind of similar for a while. But then it was the other half of that journey that was a lot of my time was just sleeping on my own if I was traveling, hitchhiking with someone in the middle, usually outside of a gas station, like within a kilometer and a half of a gas station of some kind. because. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned, if I was trying to get somewhere, my goal was always to get dropped off, ask the person that was giving me the ride wherever we were going to stop like outside of a uh, major city or wherever it was they're headed and to drop me off at that gas station near there, near the next highway that I wanted to take. And then I would just walk about a kilometer away and I would just look for the first kind of comfortable isolated spot that I knew I would be safe and no one was going to bother me through the night. 
and I would roll out my mat and sleep. If it was like really scary or rough conditions, I might set up my tent, but I had a little thin sleeping mat and the weather is great. You know, you'd be surprised. Most people would be surprised that you don't need a tent to keep bugs off you. Bugs don't naturally want to just like climb all over your body and stuff. So really just, you just said, I'd set up my little mat. I'd use my backpack as a pillow. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had like a small little travel inflatable travel pillow. I put that behind my head, but yeah, I set up my little sleeping mat and sleep there for the night, wake up, walk back to the gas station and sit there till I caught a ride. Yeah. And like I was mentioned outside of, yeah, and it is bum life. I just read that in the comments. Um, yeah, it was bum life and it was, um, but no, honestly, that was probably one of the most beautiful parts of the journey. And mm-hmm. And to try and not veer too far away into the story, like, you know, the the whole overarching idea behind all of this was this really radical experiment and being just present with everything that was in my immediate life in that moment, being open to all the new things that came every single day, because every day was completely different. Like, you know, you're sleeping in a new place every day, you're getting, you don't know who's going to give you a ride. You don't know where, like what your next meal is necessarily going to be. You don't know. You literally, every day you're waking up to a completely new environment and new situation. Mm -hmm. And as challenging as that does um, get from time to time, the beauty of it is like, it requires this really radical presence. You have to be fully present in what you're doing every day. And to the mystery of the everyday. What a lot of travelers that have done this kind of stuff talk about, and I would concur now, is that, you know, what, what we like to do as humans when we live in our cities and when we create our lives is we love to create this whole security, this whole illusion of security and safety and of the next day, tomorrow being guaranteed. So, you know, maybe you have a job that provides you with a stable income, that provides you with a house that you can stay in, that lets you build a little environment that you can wake up to every day, that allows you to start building some basic routines. The reason we do this is because we can feel comfortable about what tomorrow's gonna look like. Or Mm -hmm. it's one of the reasons, kind of one of the unconscious reasons for our behavior. The funny thing is how many people get trapped in that pattern And they don't even want to be there anymore. They want to go travel. They want to go on some adventure, but they're so comfortable and they're so afraid of what the unknown is that they don't want to do it. But the truth is, and it is the absolute truth of life, tomorrow is never guaranteed. Even in your security bubble, a virus could hit the world. You could lose your job tomorrow. Worst case scenario, and it hopefully doesn't happen, but you could die. You could get in a car accident. You could get in, you know, any amount of things. And it happens to people all the time, every day of the, of the year, every day of life. Yeah. A big part of all of this is like learning how to not take your life for granted and accept and really like immerse yourself into the fact that we don't know what tomorrow is going to look like. And this is just the radical form of it. Very beautifully said. I really like that you summarize all that up so eloquently, especially during these times. It's such a powerful statement to make because the theme of our last couple of podcasts have been people taking on these crazy adventures and having to overcome that fear of the unknown that kind of always creeps in. Like, for example, when I decided to go teach in South Korea, I had no idea what I was signing up for, but I knew I wanted something more adventurous and to explore the culture and life in Asia. But the hardest part is getting over that initial fear of the unknown. 
I also wanted to mention one of my favorite authors, Tim Ferriss, what he likes to do to remind himself that everything can be taken away at any time is that once every three months or so, he does absolutely bare minimum living. So he'll be sleeping in a sleeping bag on the floor, eating simple staple foods like beans and rice. This not only helps him stay grateful for what he has, but also serves as a reminder that everything can be taken away at any moment. And more importantly, that he can still survive and live under those conditions. I think it's a good tool for overcoming fear because it allows you to take on these new risks, knowing that the absolute worst thing that can happen, the worst thing, if everything fails, is that you're living on the street with a sleeping bag, but you're still getting by. And I really like that example because it shows us that we can survive, especially during these times. We start believing that if we don't have three meals a day or toilet paper or Netflix or X or Y or Z, that we will not be able to survive. But in reality, we have been around for so many years. We've adapted to every situation. I mean, we're still here now, so we can get by on so little. That's why your story is so fascinating to me, because you were able to get by on almost nothing. You were able to trust the universe, trust that everything will work out in the end, and you will learn something. You met fantastic people, had good connections, and of course, some bad things happened. You got your back stolen, but that's life. You're going to have your ups and your downs. 100%. And I, mm-hmm. I, you know, I really... I think that's just like hitting the nail on the head because I think it's really just all about just re- reminding yourself of that of the, and not and not and being able to let go of that kind of illusion of security that we give ourselves all the time. And I love I love the Tim Ferriss's way of doing that. I think it's like doing a, a really simple way of doing it is also fine. It doesn't have to be as radical as mm-hmm. mine was, but mm-hmm. you know, we all have our own different limits and boundaries and like, you know, it's not like I jumped into this overnight. I had done traveled Taiwan alone. I had traveled India alone. I had traveled Vietnam alone. I have done so many other adventures that they built up to this one. It mm-hmm. wasn't like, um, you know, immersing myself into so many totally uncomfortable things, you know? But I think the, the thing you said that I think is really one of the biggest takeaways is when you take away a lot of these things that we're, we enjoy, that we're, we've gotten into a habit of enjoying, what really comes to the surface and you start to really ask yourself again, is like, what are the things that I really need? Mm-hmm. Like, what are the things that are actually, actually needed for me to be content in life, mm-hmm. for me to have satisfaction? Because, you know, honestly, I will tell you right now, and it's something I'm really so proud that have come from these experiences. Like, I don't need a hot pizza to be happy. Mm-hmm. I honestly don't. Like, I like it. Yeah, I think it's great. Like, You know, you throw all the toppings on there, fresh made, Italian thin crust. Like, I love a fucking great pizza. It's amazing. It's a beautiful work of art. I don't need it. And it's not the thing I look forward to every day. Because I I know the things that I really need, which is like a a really good connection with someone. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I really need that. Sometimes I really need someone to talk to, someone to, you know, hold hands with, someone to to really share my life with. And that, Mm -hmm. that is a real need. As opposed to like, you know, oh, I really like my coffee in the morning. You know, yeah. I really need my coffee in the morning to start my day. It's like, do you, do you really need that thing? These experiments you can run in your life and these little adventures you can go on are a fun way of like letting you experiment with your own life and your own self with what do I need? You know, what are the things I really need to be happy? Yeah, I 100% agree with you on that. And just as we are wrapping up your story, what lessons did you learn and come away with after you finished this journey? That idea that we just mentioned of reevaluating what it what what are the things you really need in life, and I think for me it boiled down to a couple really simple things, which was connection. You know, we need to feel connected. 
And that's not always necessarily just to others. That can be connected to yourself, which is really important. And I saw that Philip in the group chat asked about like time slowing down, which it did slow down in a sense that I had very little to do but be with myself in, in whatever experience I had to do that day. You know, whether it was, you know, have to hitchhike a ride and try and still trying to get to Portugal or, you know, waking up in Valencia and having a day just to hang out in the city. You know, whatever that day's adventure had to be, the ultimate truth of it was that I had so little to worry about. I don't have a rent to worry about. I don't have a job to go to. I don't have to think about, you know, I had some very basic problems I had to solve, but truth be told, I felt like they're quite a lot simpler than some of the problems we have to solve when we have a business or a job or a, a career that we're dealing with. And they're much more fundamental things that are just the natural human things we have to do. Like I need to find food. What's, what's going to be my meal today? Where am I going to sleep? You know, that's always a big question for the day. Um, but then outside of those two basic questions, which are probably our two most fundamental questions. The only other question I really, who am I going to connect to today? Was this really beautiful time in my life where I was able to narrow down everything else. I didn't have to worry about anything else in my life besides those three things. What am I going to eat? Where am I going to sleep? And who am I going to connect with today? Being able to stay so open to everything that came in me, came to my life those times. Like I met so many random people. Every day was full of strangers. Every day was full of some mystery situation in which I was going to be able to present myself with like open arms to whoever it was. Random people on the street, random people, they were going to give me a ride and I was going to be present. I was going to be there and I was going to like we kind of mentioned in the title of this whole story was like it was all so much of the story was driven by compassion. So much mm -hmm. of the the day to day life was driven by compassion. Like I wasn't worried about just satisfying my needs. My, my goal was to try and give myself in a really beautiful way to whoever came my way. If mm -hmm. you gave me a ride, I wanted to make sure that you got something back from our time together. Like mm -hmm. maybe it was something about our stories. Maybe it was something about who I was. Maybe it was a physical thing. I took photos of everyone that I took, uh, that I, that gave me a ride. I gave them all my social media accounts and we connected with, I connected with many of them later and I shared those photos with them. And on top of that, I, you know, one of my favorite ones that was so simple was this family in Spain picked me up and took me almost eight hours, which is huge in hitchhiking to take me so far. And they took me eight hours to um, just south of Switzerland, Eastern France, which is fucking beautiful. But I got there and I was kind of excited to be in France for the first time. Of course, all I saw was gas stations, basically. So I've been to France, but I've only seen gas stations and, you know, the highway. Amidst that trip, we stopped for lunch, and this family spoke almost no English, which astounded me. And not only on that, not only did they not speak hardly any English, but it was a man, his wife, and their young, like, five-year-old daughter. Mm -hmm. And they decided to pick me up, like some random dude with his handpan, his instrument, his backpack, who's just sitting there playing music, and they decide, hey, we're going to give this guy a ride today. I like we when we first engaged, they clearly figured out really quickly that my Spanish skills were very little, and yet they still offered wow. to give me a ride. <laughs> These poor people probably had no idea what they were signing up for when they decided to pick you up. Hundred percent, hundred percent, and they like you know a lot of people 
the the exchange felt really great because we could talk to each other. Right. So a lot of the best ones were because we could share stories and they wanted to hear my story. And that was an opportunity for them to expand themselves, which is cool. But this was a, such a unique one where I couldn't give them a story. Mm. So what was I going to give them? So I, the whole time, I remember I had my journal. I was writing them a letter in English that I was hoping they could translate later. And I carried around a couple like little trinkets that I could give these people that as little gifts, mementos from our experience together when I traveled. And then at the same time, they one of the ways I ended up finding that was so cool that I, I walked away with this being a really beautiful experience was like when we stopped for lunch, they offered me food. I told them, no, I had my own and I did have some food at that time. So I was able to eat my own food with them. But then at this, and they're kind of laughing at what I was eating, which understood like I was chewing on vegetables. I had like a little deal of tahini. I would dip my vegetables in. And then I had like uh, some fruit and that's all I ate basically. Of course they had chips and you know, your standard kind of lunch snack, but then their daughter was sitting there and I, you know, I've been teaching, I taught kids in English uh, in South Korea for the years. I love working with kids. And actually it was the time where I really found this fondness for working with kids mm-hmm. and having done yoga for about six years and being on the path of being a teacher myself one day, this little girl, I had my yoga mat with me and we, uh, I ended up like doing a little yoga thing with her and like showing her like yoga postures and the, the mom, the parents were just like taking photos of us, giggling, having the time of life. And um, there's just this really beautiful moment of exchange where I was connecting with their daughter and showing them not using language, trying to give them something without being able to use language and being able to walk away from that, still feeling like we both got something out of it. During these times, it's good to take away any uplifting nuggets that we can What were some examples of compassion or generosity you witnessed during your trip? Every single person that gave me a ride was one of the most beautiful things. And this is something you get in the hitchhiking world if you start to study it more and read some of the books by people who have read this stuff, because it's a whole field. It is a whole field of study. And the people that have done it are really beautiful and really interesting people. And one of the things they'll tell you about, it is so unique to start a relationship with all these people by requesting an act of kindness, by requesting a random act of kindness. Every single person that gave me a ride, regardless of who they were and how that experience went and the stories of those people, because they ranged in all shapes and sizes. There were young kids, there were you know smoking cigarettes and stuff, like trying to get me to drink with them while we we're on the road, to families like the Spanish family, to family from the Netherlands that ended up taking me all the way from France, all the way up to the Netherlands, like 15 hours in their car overnight, which is crazy. Every single person that gave me a ride, it was just like so humbling to be gifted something so powerful and to start a relationship because it almost filtered out anyone you didn't want to interact with because only someone with a good heart was going to do this random act of kindness for you anyways. Mm -hmm. So you almost felt like you filtered out people that were in dark places and you were just left with all these really good spirited people who were just going to do something randomly nice for you. And I never took it for granted. Not a single one. I remember every single one of their faces still today. And I felt like, you know, that was Throughout the journey, some one of the most humbling things was just being able to see the gift that right. they gave me. And did experiencing this kindness and generosity inspire or motivate you to pay it forward, like wanting to host cow surfers or anything like that? 
A hundred percent. And I am a longtime couch surfer long before I even did all of this. And in Shanghai, I had, my place was surfed by probably 50 different people um, over the course of three years. You know, that is something I am, I'm huge on is that, you know, yes, I did this adventure where I was in charge of asking for random acts of kindness, but at the same time, it came from a place of like, wanting to be someone and always being someone now that is in charge of giving random acts of kindness as much as I'm receiving it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I really live, it's one of my favorite things. I forgot where that started. I've heard a lot of different people use it, but it is one of my mottos in life is random acts of kindness and not just on big adventures. Every single day of my life, I am looking for an opportunity to practice a random act of kindness. It is truly, it is truly soul, soul fulfilling giving your energy to others unselfishly mm-hmm. is 100% like the best thing you could ever do in your life and finding space for that every day because you realize it always comes back to you. Truer words could not have been said, my man. As the wonderfully wise line goes, the secret to living is giving. So yeah, I agree with you, helping others, volunteering, doing random acts of kindness. Those are going to give you those good feelings that you just can't buy anywhere else. But this is a good place to end our discussion on your journey of living the bare minimum lifestyle for five months in Israel and Europe. I want to thank you for sharing your story and the powerful takeaways that you have provided. We're going to finish with our Travel Tribe toss-up where we ask three travel-related questions and you answer the first thing that comes into mind. Okay. Question number one. What is the most underrated destination you have been to? First thing that comes to my head, Mongolia. Was this your horseback riding experience? Horseback trekking through the the steps outside of Ulaanbaatar for seven days. So living off horseback for seven days. Yeah, I think hands down, one of the most underrated countries, just especially like the way Iceland's blowing up like crazy in the last few years. Mm-hmm. Mongolia deserves all that same love. Mongolia is like the landscape is unbelievable. It's just, wow. It is one of the most beautiful natural places to visit for sure. Well, was this some kind of like tour you did? Yeah, and it was only for five days, so it wasn't very long. But we met someone there, and this is one of those little bits of inspiration that inspires me to do my crazy shit. This guy, who later I ended up realizing was a huge burner as well, go figure. But he he went to Mongolia, went to the same place we were to get these horses, that we did this horse trekking experience. He bought a horse from them <laughs> and rode across Mongolia for a month via horseback. <laughs> It's fascinating because in Mongolia, especially in the steppes with the the grasslands, the horses live off the grass. So you don't have to worry about feeding them. All you have to do is know where the local watering holes are. So as long as you know where to take the horses to get water, you can live in this gorgeous place for as long as you want, as long as you just know where to get food. And you can just ride. He rode across Mongolia for a month. Life goals. 100% going to be one of my journeys one day, too. Yeah, I think I'll have to add that to my list as well. All right, question number two. What is the most unique thing you have eaten abroad? Okay, I think one of the the ones I always lean on in terms of the hands down the worst thing I've ever had while traveling. And disclaimer, I am a huge lover of food and someone that in general has such a wide palate. I am known for being the person that when I was living in Korea, I'm eating Korean food like regularly. When I lived in China, China food, Chinese food regularly. I love food and I have a really wide palate and taste for food. So I can, 
I eat everything. When I was in South Korea, one of the worst things I ever had, and I still to this day do not understand what human beings are eating this food, um, was fermented stingray. Oh my God. That is the worst thing I've eaten because it tastes like, it has a smell of pneumonia in it, which is insane. Oh my gosh. I had a friend visiting uh, me in uh, Korea and we decided to go to the seafood market. I forgot the name of it in Seoul. And you basically have your own fish, uh, all your fish and all your seafood there and you pick it live and then you go upstairs and they will do barbecue. And so we're like, okay, we have shrimp, we have fish. Let's do something creative. And so we got the we we saw the stingray. We're like, all right, let's get it. And the, the ajima, the Korean grandma, goes up to us and like tells us to smell it. And it smelled a tro- It smelled like toilet cleaner because it had pneumonia smell. And we're like, oh yeah, whatever. We'll just they'll probably grill it later. And it comes to our plate and it's raw. And we're like, okay. And the guy says, yeah, this is how you're supposed to eat it. We put it on chopsticks. We do our little toast together and we eat it and immediately both of us are gagging and red and about to vomit. Like, I mean, I, I was ready to just puke everything up because you're, you have a gag reflex because you're not supposed to. <laughs> your body is like, okay, this is not right. And is, is spewing it out. And the Koreans next to us are just laughing at us. And we actually just gave it to them and they were just laughing, drinking soju and thought it was the funniest thing. I think that's so funny. It is literally, I can't believe we both have the same one, but I mean, that's after eight more years of living abroad. That is still by far the worst thing I've ever had. And it was after eating a live baby octopus. Mm. So like that was a after eating a baby octopus alive. It was still hands down the worst thing I've ever had. I, I, I had the octopus as well. And that is like, that's like minor leagues compared to this stingray stuff. I don't understand it. And now I'm a diver. So I feel really even bad that I did it. If you are in Korea, I, I wouldn't recommend trying it <laughs> because it is it is not not pleasant. All right, last question: What moment abroad made your heart sink? Oh my God, hands down, this one's so easy. It's so funny. Blasted in the UAE. I don't think I ever thought I would be announcing this broadcasted live over the internet, but I am officially blacklisted in the country in the UAE, <laughs> the United Arab Emirates, which means. <laughs> the rest of my life i cannot enter that country um, now we could play the game of guess why zach is blacklisted inside the uae but i'll just spoil the ending i was coming from india hilariously enough it was these were like two of the worst moments i've ever had traveling hilariously enough it was like two days after walking around with a group of people in mumbai india who got caught smoking weed with us all in a group and I wasn't even smoking, 100% truth. We had to bribe our way out of that situation. So I just lost like $100 the day before to these Indian policemen. Dumb enough, I was leaving for the UAE for a 24-hour stopover. I have an ex-girlfriend from college that lives there now um, that's doing a nursing abroad program. I was literally going to stop in, have like dates and tea and fly out. And then I was on my way to Israel. I knew at the time, no one in India smokes weed. Everyone smokes hash. So I knew that I couldn't, like, 
I knew that I had to make sure I didn't have any drugs on me when I was leaving the country. A good standard tip for anyone out there. Never leave a country with drugs on you. I remember giving my little, I would, I had like, I was smoking little rolly cigarettes at the time, this time in my life. So I, I kept my hash ball in there and I gave them my little pack of uh, tobacco. My friend, this German guy that I just befriended the last few days. Like here, take this. It has some hash in it. I'm leaving. I don't need it anymore. And I... Flew to the UAE. I went all the way through the Indian airport. I had this little, I had my bags. And then I had this little fanny pack that I was wearing at the time that had like pockets on it. I remember specifically the Indian police, like the guy at the airport, reaching and, and checking with his fingers into every single one of those pockets. I went to the airport fine. I went through security fine. I was, I flew out. I, I was totally under the illusion that I had nothing on me. <laughs> I flew into the UAE airport. Little did they stopped me. Of course, nowadays with my really long hair, the one downside of the really long hair, one of the downsides of the really long hair, every airport wants to stop you um, and randomly search you for drugs. So I get stopped. I get pulled over. They go through the entirety of my bags, and I am just like kind of scoffing at this guy. I'm just like... Like, you know, you're just wasting your time, my time. Is this really necessary? Just kind of being a, a little bit of not very nice because I was really frustrated by them doing this. And at the very end, the last thing he sees me wearing my little fanny pack, he goes, let me see your fanny pack. I take it off and he starts reaching into the pockets and he pulls out a little ball of hash. Ooh. My Ooh. heart has never, ever dropped like it dropped in that moment. I mean... I literally was freaking the fuck out inside. I was like, there are a few countries in the world that you don't want to get caught with drugs. The UAE is one of these countries. I learned later that day. So I, okay, that happens. My heart drops. They start walking me to this office where they pull out a binder of documents for me to sign. A binder, like 15 to 20 pages. I have no idea what's about to happen. I'm afraid I might actually go to jail. I really, I really truly feel like I thought I was about to go to jail uh -huh. and they, I send one message to that girl I was going to visit. It's the last thing I got to do on my phone before they ran over and took it from me. I got away one message that said trouble at the airport. They found weed. And mm -hmm. that was all I could send. They take my phone away. That girl ends up contacting the U S embassy in the UAE, telling them what happened like kind of freaking out because she had just read a story in a big like weed magazine in the USA like six months ago of this guy from California who went to the UAE who had two little oil, hash oil um, vapes cartridges for his vape because he's in California and now here in Seattle, it's legal. You can do that shit. Just go to the store and buy it. He got caught there. He got sentenced to three years in prison without trial. He was there for nine months before the US embassy got him out. Oh my gosh. This story is the only thing she has floating in her head when she gets that message from me. So she's freaking out. After about three hours of sitting there not knowing what's going to happen, they make me sign, like I said, probably 25 documents. And I didn't even, they're all in Arabic. Can't even read them in English. I just sign all of the shit. And <laughs> they tell me that I'm blacklisted in the country. And I was just never going to be able to return. And they, they took my fingerprints. They scanned my eyes. 
Um, they did some eye scanning thing, which I don't even know why they're doing that. And then they took my photo with like a little like mug shot with like the, the hash on the table and me sitting here with a little sign in front of it. <laughs> and then they made me sit in the police office at the police at the airport for 32 hours before my flight. So I had to stay in there for 32 hours before I took my next flight. I mean, I was so happy. I was, I was stoked. I was like, this is by far the best way this could have turned out. Like, I am so, I promise you, I will never come back. Like, you don't ever have to worry about that. Yeah. One of those um, unintentional bucket list items that I will hundred percent never want to do again is being blacklisted in the UAE. You, you can start a whole other podcast about these kind of situations. I remember one of my first times traveling uh, when I went to Singapore and they have on the customs form, like if there's any drugs in your bag, it's like sentenced to death. And I was like worried out because I was staying at a hostel. I'm like, what if somebody just came like late at night and just mistook my bag for that? What am I going to say? It's not mine. Someone else put it there. Right? And you always hear those stories of the people in the Philippines and um, for certain parts of the Southeast Asia, you do not want to be caught with drugs. Yeah. And there's stories of cops fucking putting people in those situations and then making them bribe them to get it out. You know, right. so it's like definitely be mindful of drugs and the countries you're going to. It's a very mm -hmm. good thing to learn as you travel. All right, Zach. Well, thank you so much for the laughs, the adventures, and the takeaways from your five-month nomadic adventure in Israel and Europe. We appreciate it and wish you all the best. So good to see you, man, and catch up with you. Yeah, I hope we get to do it in person one of these days. Sounds good, boss. Until then, safe travels. Music